most of the authorities in at least U.S. society, many societies around the world are just there to maintain a power structure. And so they are not, for a guy like him or a guy like me, they're really not legitimate authorities. They're just there to control and meet the needs of, of a power structure. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you in a conversation that is being recorded on the 19th day of February 2019 here in Japan. And today we're talking to a guest that should be familiar to my long-term listeners. That's Dr. Bruce Levine, who I have had the opportunity to interview twice before on the podcast. But don't worry for those of you who are not quite so hardcore Cor Corbett reporters out there who might not remember, I will include the links to those previous conversations in the show notes for this interview. That's interview 474 and interview 786 back in the archives for those keeping track at home. But today we're talking to Dr. Bruce Levine uh, of brucelevine.net about his most recent work, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, um, which I, I guess I should read the full title because it is quite the title. Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. Well, that's quite the promise, and I can tell you that this book certainly delivers on that promise if you are at all inclined towards the subject matter, but let's get into the details. Dr. Levine, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Great to be back with you, James. Excellent. Well, as I say, we have had a couple of conversations in the past, so hopefully some people out there will be familiar with your work, but for those who aren't, perhaps you could just describe yourself and your background. Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist. We can talk about that a little later, but mostly embarrassed about the direction of my profession, which has become increasingly pathologizing anti-authoritarians. And so for a lot of reasons, I wrote this uh, book, this most recent book, uh, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, which really is a book about anti-authoritarians, and it's a book for anti-authoritarians. And we can get into, or if you'd like me to do it now, just define what I mean by those terms. But I... I it's been it's one of the reasons I, I should say that we that I wrote an article in 2012 about uh, why psych why uh, people are being diagnosed with uh, you know or with mental illness because they're you know by, because they're anti-authoritarian and and this was really one of the reasons was the title was why anti-authoritarians are diagnosed with mental illness and this is really one of the reasons what that led to this book but I should say. That's not the only way in the United States or around the world that anti-authoritarians are getting assaulted by being pathologized, but as a big way, and I thought it was my obligation as a psychologist to talk about this in at least one of the chapters of the book. Right. Well, I am glad for you having done that. And so let's start, as you say, by defining terms, because that's obviously important in a conversation like this. And quoting from uh, the introduction to your book, you say, resisting illegitimate authority is about valuing anti-authoritarians. My life work has been depathologizing noncompliance and rebellion, helping anti-authoritarians survive within authoritarian schools, workplaces, and other environments, assisting those who love anti-authoritarians to better understand them, and helping anti-authoritarians gain hope that while a wise struggle against illegitimate authorities may or may not be victorious, it can lead to a community of fellow anti-authoritarians, which will be music to the ears of a lot of the listeners of this podcast out there. But let's start by setting those terms up so that we understand what we're talking about here. What is authoritarianism? What is anti-authoritarianism? Authoritarian is just really somebody, um, and authoritarianism really means an inclination to unquestioning obedience. 
So an, an authoritarian in power demands unquestioning obedience and a authoritarian who is a subordinate provides that unquestioning obedience. So one of the quotes that I have in the book, there is a Lyndon Johnson authoritarian quote where he talks about his own authoritarianism and his demand for authoritarian subordinates. And he's talking about what he wants from somebody who's an appointee. He says, I, I want this person to be able to kiss my ass in Macy's window at high noon and tell me it smells like roses. This is so Lyndon Johnson and his ass kissers are authoritarians. In contrast, you've got anti-authoritarians who are not necessarily a anti-all authority. We can talk about that later, but they question the legitimacy of authority before taking it seriously. So, for example, if an authority uh, doesn't know what they're talking about, they're uh, exploitative, uh, they're dishonest, uh, they're untrustworthy, anti-authoritarian is going to evaluate that authority as illegitimate, not legitimate. They're not going to take that authority seriously. They're going to challenge that authority and they're going to resist that authority. And that's what an anti-authoritarian is. Now, you gestured towards it there, but let's flesh that out a little bit. The difference between legitimate and illegitimate authority and whether that applies to all anti-authoritarians. Do they make that distinction? Should they? How does that play out in the real world? Well, it's certainly a subjective distinction. What I would argue, the quality of your life in many ways is going to do have to do with how good you are making that distinction. And that also, too, whether, you know, how much you're going to have a real genuine democracy has a lot to do with that. So, for example, a lot of uh, anarchists I talk to, you know, really, they, they, they get upset because for them it's like the hell with all authority. But I, I make it clear to them, you know, one of the most famous anarchists in U.S. history, um, people like Noam Chomsky have said, look, you know, when a parent tells a kid, you know, who's about ready to run across the street in traffic, when they grab that kid to make sure that kid does not get run over by a car, they're acting like an authority. They're using some coercion. But you would most people would say this is a legitimate authority. All right. And so what he also goes on to say, which I agree with, is that most of the authorities in at least U.S. society, many societies around the world are just there to maintain a power structure. And so they are not, for a guy like him or a guy like me, they're really not legitimate authorities. They're just there to control and meet the needs of, of a power structure. And so, but it is a very subjective judgment, what's a legitimate authority and versus not a legitimate authority. Absolutely. Well, then let's get into the way that the power structure, legitimate or not, I suppose, depending on your viewpoint, uh, pathologizes dissent and anti-authoritarianism generally. And you do make a d distinction between dissent and disobedience and, and uh, resisting authority in your work. But let's get into the specifics of how this is pathologized in the system, alluding and, and directing people specifically to chapter six of your book, Psychiatric Assault and Marginalization, not just Francis Farmer. And for people who do not know Francis Farmer other than as a Nirvana reference, <laughs> perhaps you can uh, remind us of that story. Right. She was a actress who is a really, you know, very stunningly beautiful actress who was also a very critical thinker, um, you know, wrote, you know, about when she was still a kid, um, wrote about whether they were you know, about religion and wrote about politics. And so she was a, a, a free thinker, at least, as, you know, much more so than your average uh, uh, Hollywood starlet. And so she got herself um, in trouble with authorities routinely. And, you know, at one point, she was, you know, she refused to pay a, um, a ticket 
completely and the, and the police barged into her room while she was sleeping naked and, and drunk and they dragged her off and she was you know she fought them off she was angry and forceful in the in the courtroom and the next thing you know um she's declared mentally ill and she spends much of a lot of the rest of her life in and out of mental institutions and a lot of folks who have studied uh, francis farmer's life was just saying like this was just an anti-authoritarian beautiful actress who um it was easier for the studio it was easier for her family to view her as mentally ill as a way to marginalize what she was all about what she was doing um then it you know that was much easier and that's throughout history there's a lot of famous people you know, and not so famous people uh, that that psychiatric pathologizing is a way of just marginalizing to blow them off. And I'll give you a recent, a, a recent example, um, Edward Snowden. When Edward Snowden in 2013, and I'm sure most of your listeners are you know, aware of what he did, but just in case there's a f- couple of folks out there who didn't, I mean, Edward Snowden's working for the American intelligence apparatus out there, and he's working for a contractor that deals with um, a, you know, NSA, and, and he's, he's becoming clearer and clearer to him that the U.S. government is violating the Constitution, specifically the Fourth Amendment, with their massive warrantless surveillance on U.S. citizens. And this is really upsetting for a guy like Snowden, who doesn't start out as this real anti-authoritarian guy in life. He joins the military and he's a patriotic American. But he comes to in his third by his mid 20s. He realized what I learned in school about my U.S. government is not the reality. I'm seeing what they're doing. They're breaking the Constitution. He gets very upset. And so he leaks this to the mainstream media or he leaks it to as much media as he can. And for this, he is arrested. He's criminalized. He's, you know, he's, he's arrested under the Espionage Act. And so one of the ways that author, anti-authoritarians are uh, assaulted is their criminalization. But um, also what happens to Snowden, when this first happens, if you take a look, and I go through them in the, the mass media, at, at the point of his arrest, you see them all in a chorus, from Bob Schieffer at CBS News to, to folks over there at The New Yorker to across the board in the mainstream. They're all calling him a personality sort of, specifically a narcissistic personality, sort of grandiose narcissist. And as and why are they doing that? It's a way to, let's not take this guy seriously. It's a way of marginalizing him by, by labeling him psychiatrically. So the media could not, instead of the media saying, why, why, why didn't we get this? Why, why did we leave it up to Snowden to uncover this stuff and, and, you know, and get arrested and, and get arrested for it. Why didn't we cover it? Instead, they, they discredit him and marginalize him by just saying, oh, this guy's just got a personality disorder. He's just narcissistic. So that's one of the more recent ways. But there's a lot of different examples throughout history. Let's get into some of those specific diagnoses that have been used in the past that are now discredited, but were taken quite seriously by the authoritarians of their day as ways of marginalizing legitimate dissent and anger, like drapetomania, like hysteria as a uh, diagnosis for uh, women that uh, to marginalize their experience, or like in our day and age, oppositional defiance disorder. Sure, you, get, you got a good group there. Well, one of the ones, drapetomania, that maybe some of your audience have never heard of, um, it's a among people who have been critics of psychiatry for many years. It's a well-known diagnosis um, that really s- addresses this issue completely. And it's it's a diagnosis in the, in the 1850s. A guy, a Louisiana physician. Again, what is he trying to do? Meet the needs of the slavery power structure at that point. So what does he do? He sees these slaves who are running away, runaway slaves. And rather than address the reality that this is an oppressive system, of course it makes sense with any save slave who has real courage and guts to try to run away, what does he do? No, no, no. 
um, they, they are suffering from a mental illness called drapetomania. That's what causes them to flee. Why else would they flee? You know, if they didn't have a mental illness, because we have a perfectly, you know, good system here going on. And so that's one example um, in the 1850s. But it goes way back. If you see the father of American psychiatry, um, a guy named Benjamin Rush um, in the early 1800s, after the initial anti-authoritarian revolutionary fervor, America becomes you know, more wanting a lot of the founding fathers, a lot of elitists want a highly centralized authority. They don't want any resistance. They don't want any rebellion. So when a guy like Rush um, sees a lot more resistance going on, you have Daniel Shays, you have the Whiskey Rebellion, you have things going on. So what does he do? He, he sees all of these people as suffering what he calls from anarchia. Anarchia is his illness, an excessive need for freedom. I love this one, an excessive need for freedom. So you have all of that, and a lot of people... They, they laugh and say, well, Bruce, this is, you're talking about the 1800s, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't go on today until I remind them, you know, I'm in graduate school, already a little embarrassed by my mental health profession, by my psychology profession for a few reasons, and then they come out with this new DSM-3. We're up to the DSM-5, this, this Bible gets bigger and bigger. But and for people who don't know, let's just clarify, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual issued by the APA? issued by the American Psychiatric Association, published by them, and so it's sort of like the fox guarding the henhouse kind of thing. They create, they create these diagnoses and then they, they sell them. And so they, in, in 1980, when I'm in graduate school, they come out with a new one. I mean, the, the one thing that happened in the 1970s was uh, gay activists um, were really upset with being labeled for being mentally ill just because of their sexual preference. And so they were successful. It was one of the few successful challenges against the American Psychiatric Association to actually get rid of a mental illness. But it's really important that they did this, not just for gay Americans and gay people around the world, but, but for everybody to realize that it was so clear then that these mental illnesses were clearly cultural kind of things. They were clearly political. They had nothing to do with science because homosexuality goes into the DSM as a mental illness because of culture and politics. And by the early 1970s, when you have gay activism, they're able to get rid of it. But at the same time, when that's happening, there's more of diagnoses being thrown in there against kids who have no you know, political power. So one of the things that happens in 1980 is you have the introduction of this new mental illness called oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. Now, literally, this is this has nothing to do with juvenile delinquency. People need to know. So these kids specifically are not doing anything illegal. That's a whole other mental quotes, mental illness called conduct disorder. Um, but oppositional defiant disorder, by definition, they are arguing with adults. They are often refusing to comply with adults. They are doing the things that almost every of the 20 people I profile in, in, who are in resisting illegitimate authority, all these famous anti-authoritarians from George Carlin to Lenny Bruce to Ralph Nader to Thomas Payne, all these people are doing this kind of stuff. And so that's what really concerned me at that time in the 80s. I says, are you kidding? You are pathologizing rebellion. Now, some of these kids at the time, you know, if you talk a 9, 10-year-old who's just being oppositional, they're not making – you know, judgments necessary about who's a legitimate authority and who's an illegitimate authority. So I wouldn't call them genuine anti-authoritarians at eight or nine years old. But here's the important thing. A lot of these oppositionally defined kids who are just being a handful and rebellious at the time, they're the kind of kids who at some point mature into genuine anti-authoritarians, unless you're drugging the crap out of them, which is what my profession then 
moved into, not just pathologizing them, giving a mental illness, but they are part of, if you take a look at the oppositional defiant disorder, that along with conduct disorder are what we, they call, my profession calls the disruptive disorders. And there's this huge increase in the early 90s to the 2000s of the number of these kids with disruptive disorder who are being drugged on these antipsychotic drugs, Risperdal, Zyprexa, this kind of thing, heavily tranquilizing drugs. So this was a huge concern for me, not only for these poor kids who are getting, you know, who are or all of a sudden becoming pathologized and drugged, but politically this should concern everyone when you've got the next generation of potential anti-authoritarians being completely marginalized by these pathologizing and medicating. Let's drill down on the scientific invalidity of these diagnoses, which is something of an open secret? Is it even a secret at all anymore amongst psychologists themselves? But certainly comes as news to a lot of the public. You know, it, 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 among psychologists, when I was going to school, everybody used to laugh about these things. Everybody used to chuckle um, that no one took these things really seriously scientifically. They knew that they were created. How are these, all of these mental illnesses are created by a committee at the American Psychiatric Association. They sit around, basically this is how it's done, and they decide what behaviors get them uncomfortable. And uh, if it gets them uncomfortable enough, like it did, like homosexuality at one point got them uncomfortable enough, so they called that a mental illness. When culture changed and, they, and there was a lot of changes in politics, then they were, they, they, a lot, enough of them didn't get uncomfortable enough with it, but you had more and more non-compliant kids getting them uncomfortable. So that's really how it's, how it's created. There's no blood test. There's no EEG. There's no brain scan. There's no hard, objective reasons why something is labeled a mental illness, except a behaviors that get people at the American Psychiatric Association uncomfortable. That's, that's, the, that's the way it's done. Well, one thing that's particularly hard-hitting for me, because uh, when I was growing up um, in my high school or early adult days, the theory that was at least being propounded to the public was chemical imbalance. And, of course, that was when Prozac and the SSRIs were being heavily pimped at that time. And that was the theory. This is, you know, depression and things like this are caused by chemical imbalances, and here's the wonder pill that's going to make everything better, which... Uh, as far as I would know, if I was only consuming mainstream sources, is still the main theory of this, isn't it? Yes. If you take a look at polls, you're absolutely right. Huge, depending on whether you're talking about schizophrenia or it's even numbers are higher, depression. But even depression, I, you know, 75, 80 percent of Americans believe depression is caused by a chemical brain imbalance, despite the fact that all the ruling elite in the uh, psychiatric power structure have finally admitted you know, they started doing this heavily about 2011. A guy named Ronald Pies, P-I-E-S, I quote this guy all the time. He, he finally admits in one of their mainstream journals, he says, oh, no well-respected psychiatrist ever believed this. This is an urban legend. And he blames the, the dissemination on the biochemical imbalance on who? He blames it on people like me for inventing it, that they never even said it. I'm going like, oh, yeah, it was me that created this. You know, when 80 percent of America believes in most of the meat and everybody else believes it. And it was just totally a, a complete fabrication. But it was a fabric, very clever fabrication because they knew up until the early 1980s, it was rare for most Americans to want to take a pill for the depression. They were smart enough to realize, look, you know, every psychiatric pill, psychotropic drug that affects your neurotransmitter is going to have some serious adverse effects. 
And so very, most of, it was very rare back then for people to take psychiatric drugs. People in psychiatric hospitals were given them and those kinds of folks taking them. But it was rare for people in general to take to take antidepressants. I mean, people would take other kind of anti-anxiety drugs like Valium and that kind of thing because they knew they were just chill pills. Nobody, you know, and they wanted them. But when they came up with this idea that people who have a depression, you know, are have low levels of serotonin, it was a brilliant marketing scheme to make it sound like, well, like they have diabetes, like they have low levels of insulin. And this stuff, these SSRIs, that stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft were the early ones, that they were going to restore this defective chemical imbalance. It was a brilliant marketing idea, and it made all these folks say, okay, let me do that. It was just totally untrue. And if you listen even to the all-time commercials, they covered themselves, and they said maybe related to a chemical. They were, they were very careful you know, in terms of how they, they covered themselves, but it didn't matter because that's what people heard, and that's what they believed. And so this is one of the great lies of uh, marketing uh, and, and psychiatry that has really done its job in terms of getting everybody to think like, well, you know, if I'm depressed, I'm anxious, you know, I got a chemical brain imbalance. It's my obligation to restore it. I'm being irresponsible if I don't take these these pills. Kaching and uh, the big pharma uh, pill pimps laugh all the way to the bank. Um, it's it's truly disgusting when we realize we're dealing with people's lives here. And that's something that really hits home in this book. Um, as you outline in case study after case study of many different people throughout American history who have resisted illegitimate authority in one way or another, some of whom are people that we would all, or at least everyone would understand is some sort of, uh, is meant to be taken as, a, as an example or a model or something, but some that would be very controversial. Why are you highlighting people like the Unabomber here? Isn't this a, supposed to be a hopeful story about people who are resisting illegitimate authority and, and crushing the power structure and killing innocent people? Is this, what's going on here? Well, James, what I wanted to make sure I did of all the folks I profile, okay, is I wanted to talk about folks who were tragic and also triumphant. And so there's a section where I talk about um, people who were destructive to themselves or destructive to other people who are anti-authoritarian because I did not want to romanticize these anti-authoritarians but I also wanted people to understand how they got to be that way and so clearly you're talking about the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski I have a few pages on him he's one of my shorter profiles he's clearly the most tragic person in the in the whole book I talked to tragic certainly for all his victims that he bombed. Some of these were completely innocent victims. Some of these people he went after he were part of the power structure, but some of these people were completely innocent victims. And so he's tragic for himself. He's tragic for his, his own family because his brother, he sort of compelled his brother to have to turn him in. And so there's a lot of tragedies about Ted Kaczynski, but I, I'm, I'm curious, how, how did this guy get to be the way he was? And I think people should ask that this was a guy who was actually, yeah, he was he was a bookish kid, but he had a couple of friends in high school, super smart, super IQ, was pushed along um, and pushed into Harvard. And in Harvard, he actually started to make some friends in his early days there. It's a myth that he was a complete loner and isolate. And one of the great events, and not great positive, one of the tragic events of Ted, Ted Kaczynski's life was in his early days at Harvard. He becomes part of a psychology experiment. And this is a, I mean, when people hear this, they go, are you kidding? They allow, they wouldn't allow psychologists to do this kind of thing today. They do these other horrible ethical things, but they wouldn't allow them to do this today. But there was this experiment he was part of with one of the most famous psychologists in American history, a guy named Murray. 
um, and Henry Murray. And the psych, the experiment was literally this: that Ted, as a sophomore, is in our, you know, he's 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 asked to write what you know, write about himself, give personal information about himself, what he cares about, all that. And this information is handed to some uh, uh, attorney who's skilled at really breaking down somebody. And so this is what happens to poor young Ted. He trusts you know this psychology experimenter, and this guy ends up you know like humiliating him and they film it and they show it to him. And this goes on for a long period of time. And this is part, I'm not saying it's the only reason that Ted Kaczynski turned into this uh, angry, rageful, um, alienated guy, but it's certainly part of the reason it was brought up in his court case. His family members agree that this is a major element that my business, my profession was part of the creation of the Unibom. And it uh, should be noted that uh, there have been sources that have alleged that Henry Murray was part of the CIA's MKUltra experiments and that this was part of that. Again, make of that what you will. I will follow up on that in the future. Uh, I think it's a fascinating story that there's so much more to the Unabomber story than, than what most people would know about. But uh, just one of the examples, as I say, you profile many different people in this book and uh, go through their, their histories and how they were able to overcome and, and triumph, or how they fell into tragedy um, of their own making, or sometimes because of the circumstances they were placed in. But a lot to, to ponder. I think this is a book that does live up to its uh, title as a sort of practical guide to anti-authoritarians and how they can constructively use their anti-authoritarian proclivities to create hopefully a better life for themselves and a better life for the world, ultimately. Um, and that's, uh, I think, what most people are aiming for. Um, and and again, there's a lot to talk about here, but let's try to end it on something of a positive note. Um, what can we take away from the positive examples of anti-authoritarians who found ways to productively channel their energies? I think a couple of the things that were consistent with the anti-authoritarians who had more triumphant loves, I want to be clear that some of it has purely to do with love. So a guy like Noam Chomsky is the first to admit that he could have been one of these uh, tragic lives without a little bit of luck that he had. Um, and there were several others I talk about. I mean, there's certainly luck um, in, in the lives of George Carlin, who's another anti-authoritarian I talk about. And, you know, that he, he was good friends with Lenny Bruce, who was a more tragic anti-authoritarian, self-destructively tragic, that he moved into se heavy substance abuse. And George Carlin would be the first to say that a, m much of what's the difference between him and, and Lenny's life was, was some luck. But overall, I would say there are, besides luck, there are some other lessons to be learned. One is that people who were, had more triumphant anti-authoritarian lives, unlike people like the Unabomber, did, did, did healthier things with their anger. So any anti-authoritarian is going to have some anger about it being in American society, anger about their assault on them, anger on their, what's happened to their friends, anger for a lot of reasons. And so what you do with your anger is critically important. Also, to anti-authoritarians who dealt with the reality of money, is had a better life. Okay, so Anna Goldman, anarchist, anarchism is not real fond of having to deal with money. A lot of her anarchist buddies just eschewed money. People like uh, Alexander Berkman, and part of their not wanting to deal with it at all added extra pain to their life, added extra humiliation. And McGoldman said, "Hey, look." We're in America here. You got to make a buck. She learned how to be a public speaker, made a lot of money that way. She was a nurse, so she cared about making money. And this this not only helped her, but also helped her help her friends. So money making was is is poor. Relationships are cruel, are, are usually vital. So I talk about the anti-authoritarians who had good friendships, who had good. 
family members that, you know, that, that they had a good partner. And that's very critical as opposed to, again, people like the Unabomber or, or people like uh, even Phil Oaks, who was I love Phil Oaks. He was one of my, I, you know, he's a folk singer, political protest singer in the 1960s. But he had problematic friendships there. And and and, and he and a lot of the other two, the other way, self-destructive anti-authoritarians moved into substance abuse. So a lot of the other the more triumphant anti-authoritarians did not take their pain to, you know, and move into things like substance abuse. So those are a few of the different areas that I found that were helpful for the triumphant anti-authoritarians. Okay, uh, Dr. Bruce Levine, we will direct people once again to your website, brucelevine.net, and to this book, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, which, as I say, has a lot of useful information for uh, people who are listening to the Corbett Report and are probably find themselves in the same boat as some of these anti-authoritarians that you're profiling. But in the, on the, anti, in the anti-authoritarian spirit, um, let me dare to challenge your authority as a psychologist and <laughs> someone with a PhD after their name. I mean, you, you must be the authority on everything. But I'm wearing a shirt and tie, so that kind of puts me in the position of power in this conversation. But I, I, uh, I will take issue um, with one, one aspect of this book. Um, you do spend some time on anarchism and various anarchists, um, which I do appreciate um, being a self-styled uh, anarchist, I, I guess is one word that you could use for it, voluntarist. I, I mean, there's lots of different classifications. But in chapter, uh, sorry, I'm not sure which chapter it is, but uh, you, you say, for anarchists, both the state and capitalism are illegitimate authorities that are coercively dehumanizing. And I think that one of the things that this uh, this book fails to do is to profile any of the, the market anarchists, um, either left-wing market anarchists or free market anarchists. And that long tradition that you could arguably trace back to Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, Benjamin Tucker, uh, uh, people like Kropotkin even, more recently people like Murray Rothbard or, or people that would be f- um, more familiar in a kind of a- anarcho-capitalist um, context. But Again, I think that's uh, that's a, a huge area of anarchism that seems overlooked in in your work. Well, what I make clear is that I there's many anti-authoritarians uh, who I leave out, and that I could and I had a choice whether to include try to just have this comprehensive list of everyone, or to go into detail on twenty or so that I really have connected with my life, and and really there's only a few of the twenty. I would say, who would be self-identified anarchists. Um, so I talk about Emma Goldman being criminal, criminalized anti-authoritarian. I talk about Berkman being a self-destructive anarchist. Um, and I talk about Noam Chomsky being a more tri- having a more triumphant life, you know, having a pretty good life. So there's really only a three to 20. A lot of the other folks I talk about, I talk about socialists, which, you know, who are more anti-authoritarian. I talk about Eugene Debs, who started out in life, who really wasn't, and at too much of an anti-authoritarian guy, he really was a pretty conservative labor leader, and so, and and then he becomes an anti, more anti-authoritarian. I actually do talk Edward Snowden. I do mention that he does start out really as a libertarian, and as far as I know, he may be a libertarian. And so, I wanted to make the point that um, I wanted to talk about different personalities. Um, you know, I have out of the twenty, you know, three are African Americans. Um, I, I guess some, there's going to be some Latin folks out there who'd say like, well, where's the Latin anti-authoritarians? Well, I really didn't have not connected, you know, personally. 
there, there are. I'm, I'm sure. You know, I just really haven't. And so, you know, among the, you know, among for whatever reason, among the more like whatever you want to call it, um, libertarian um, anti-authoritarians. I mean, I do mention, you know, Snowden, but I don't get into except except in sort of uh, passing references to exactly his his politics. Um, so my, my idea of diversity um, is going to be different than other people's idea of diversity. I guess is my best way of answering that. And I do have five of the women are anti-authority. That's just by accident. I didn't try to even, from my point of view, it just so happens. Emma Goldman, Jane Jacobs, Harry Tubman. You know, there's a five women in there that are interested. Yeah, what? absolutely. Frank well, it's, it just happened that way. And it could yeah. I could have really, I guess, been creamed in interviews easily because it's, where's the women it just it just so happened i'm not going to get cream there okay well and admittedly my quibble is a trifle and uh is beside the point of the book itself <laughs> i want to make that clear but it, it stress uh, sort of jumped out at me because of my own proclivities but uh, actually maybe that's a call to any anti-authoritarians from that perspective out there to write the history of anti-authoritarianism from the market anarchist perspective but anyway um Anyway, as I say, that is a tribble and a quifle, uh, a quibble and a trifle. Um, but I will once again direct people to the book itself, which will be linked in the show notes, and brucelevine.net. Uh, are there any other places you'd like to direct people with regards to this uh, topic that we're well, covering today? That's fine. That's fine. The book's published by AK Press, who are a collective of anarchists. Um, I should tell folks that as much as you could be an anarchist in America here, they still have to care about money. They have to care about capitalism. <laughs> you know, they are, they are, but they, but they, care passionately about having a non-hierarchical um, organization, which I can attest they pulled that off. I can't, I can't identify who the boss is there. I've had a, their editor, copy editor, marketing people, they all share um, authority there. All right. Well, we'll direct people there once again. Dr. Bruce Levine, thank you for another fascinating conversation. Thank you, James. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber a weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support. <laughs>